I'm Toby Watling, the Machinery Editor for Farmers Guardian. And we're having a look around Lama Show, which takes place at the NEC, covering 10 halls. The Lama Show in, its 20, in 2023 is its 41st year of the event, with some 40,000 attendees or visitors um, across the two-day event. There's certainly machinery from all across the UK and Europe for visitors to see. Joining me now is Nikki Hunt. She's the head of sales for the Lama Show. Nikki, could you tell us a little bit more about the event and why it is when it is and, and sort of a background to it, this is being our, you know, the age of the show itself. So yeah, so um, Lama is the UK's leading agricultural machinery uh, technology and services show taking place in January. The show celebrated its 40th anniversary at the 20, May 2022 show earlier on in the year and in the this is our third show held at the NEC in Birmingham. So thinking about the event and why it's here, what does it offer in, in, in that respect to visitors and manufacturers within the UK, particularly at a time in agriculture which is quite with a lot of change you know, currently going on? Um, LAMA offers the opportunity to network, build relationships, gain new business. So the move to the NEC in Birmingham um, offered better transport links which enables more visitors from across the UK to get easier reach of the NEC. Obviously LAMA taking place at the start of the year is a great kickstart to a lot of companies. Okay. Thank you very much for that. So one of the astonishing things I, I think to, to view at LAMA is that the sheer diversity of machinery you'll see at the event and simply just walking around the, the separation between small specialist manufacturers looking at you know wearing parts machinery to very very large multinationals that are delivering huge you know visually huge products but also products for a very very wide varied part of the market so joining me now is jonathan henry from garford john can you tell me a little more about what you do and what what lama means for your business yeah so um, i'm the managing director at uh, garford farm machinery and um, we're producing hoeing systems for um, weed control or weed management um, and selling that uh, globally around the world. So um, that's our, our key portfolio, basically. Okay, so to, to put a bit of a backstory to it, when we're talking about hoeing systems, we're talking about non-chemical weed control. Now, within a world of you know, increased requirements to reduce chemical weed control and maybe a public perception of it, have you seen a change in demand for your product, but actually also what, what are your customers looking for in terms of the products they're selling to their end users, be it the supermarkets or, or grocers and that sort of product? Yeah. So obviously the organic market is a key market for us uh, around the world. Um, and um, in that space, we've also seen quite a lot of machines going into broadacre uh, production systems uh, for organic. And what we're seeing now is conventional farmers, because of those challenges you talked about with herbicide resistance, with uh, products not being on the market, um, but also for just sustainability reasons, looking for a multi-vector system, um, looking at hoeing again and thinking about bringing that into their production system in a way that they haven't thought about for the last uh, 40 years. Talking to your, your customers with your machines, and you, you know, you've sort of touched upon that you were in sort of more specialist markets and you've moved to more sort of broadacre. Are you, are you seeing customers talking to you more about the cost of production and looking to find ways of reducing it? Or is it more about managing their risk of growing a crop and looking to introduce other tools to the arsenal that they have? I think the first question is, 
herbicide resistant weeds and weed control and you know, preserving uh, yield and making their business sustainable that way. The second question is, how much does it cost? Joining me now is Simon Weaving. So Simon, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your business? Um, hi, I'm Simon Weaving, uh, Sales Director at Weaving Machinery. Uh, we are a seed drill cultivation and flail mower company uh, based in the UK, uh, building our seed drills and cultivators and importing uh, flail mowers uh, from Italy. So what's quite interesting there and why probably I think I want to talk to you is that you're in an interesting position as a manufacturer that both assembles and builds product in the UK and imports product from within the, EU and the, within the EU. What challenges have you seen in the market in the last two or three years and how has that affected your business in terms of what you do and how your business is going forward? Um, we've had some challenges. Um, our company motto is always have a large amount of stock, um, which we still do today. We have struggled importing uh, things with Brexit, paperwork's been a lot harder, uh, transport costs have obviously got a lot more. Um, there's been supply issues with gearboxes and things in Italy, um, which has put flail mowers uh, behind a bit. On the seed drill and the cultivation front, we've had to make sure that we're putting orders in for components a lot further ahead and chase suppliers to make sure it's actually going to be delivered when it is. Um, but as we have a, such a large stock, we have managed to carry on building. Obviously, the price of materials has gone up uh, astronomically, um, which we've had to deal with. Um, but buying more, we have managed to keep the price somewhere where we think is pretty sensible, even though stuff has gone up quite a lot of money. It probably should have gone up a lot more than it has done. Um, but as a company, we've decided that we've got to keep things sensible. Uh, and then there's obviously the way we are as our business, more low disturbance farming, direct drilling, uh, and also cover crops, things like that. Obviously, we're doing um, pretty well with that. So I want to sort of pick up on some of those. So as a machinery importer, you've got a huge range of products. And as, as I stand here and look, we've got a cement mixer over there. We've got a tine drill. We've got machinery in terms of crop establishment, tillage machinery, and then obviously a wider you know, amenity products as well. Are you seeing in the market that you're working in a change, particularly now with a lot more emphasis on low disturbance drill? So we are fully aware that actually direct drilling is now more popular. People are looking at moving their soil, but with changes with increased fuel costs, increased fertilizer costs, are you seeing a real, you know, great impetus from growers looking to make significantly cha significant changes much quicker than they were before? Yeah, people are, <clears throat> we're seeing a lot more of the sort of traditional farmers that wouldn't have even looked at direct drilling or low disturbance farming four or five years ago. Uh, they are wanting to change a lot quicker, but we've just got to be careful that they don't t make too much of a jump uh, too quickly and then you can go backwards, whereas using like a low draft subsoiler or any shallow tillage and then drilling um, is a quicker process. Um, we're obviously doing it in a tine form and a disc form, um, and it's customer preference. Right, thank you very much, Simon. Great stuff. So joining me now is Sean Green, who's the general manager of Merlot UK. Now, Merlot UK is a substitute subsidiary of the Italian business, um, but as a show that historically was based entirely around British manufacturing, uh, Merlot hold a huge stand presence here and don't manufacture anything at all 
in the UK, they are solely an importer. So, Sean, can you tell me a little bit more about your business and why why you're here at Lama, so yep. initially from that respect, but also some of the products you're seeing here and the changes you're seeing in the industry from the customers you're dealing with. So yeah, so Merlot, Merlot Group is a global producer of telescopic handlers primarily. We do make other products as well into the forestry and amenity and waste sectors, but predominantly telescopic handlers is our core business. The key thing about Merlot is it's still a family owned business to this day, uh, very much in, in the hands of the family day to day. The business is, is operated that way, based in the uh, uh, northwest corner of uh, Italy. Uh, but we've been here in the UK for 30 years as of 2023, so we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. Why are we here at Lama? Well, the UK market is one of the most mature and developed markets for telescopic handlers in all of Europe and actually across the world. So consequently, we are here, we want a slice of the action and we have been for 30 years. We've been coming to Lama for a number of years because it puts us right in front of our key customer base. We meet people that make the decisions, we meet people that influence the decisions, we meet people that drive and operate the machines and we're keen to hear from them, take their feedback, uh, hear their suggestions, their ideas, their comments, their praise, their criticism, etc. And that's what's being here at Lama is all about. So something that we're seeing from a lot of visitors here and, and to the extent some exhibitors alike is that Obviously, agriculture is facing some significant challenges in terms of costs, profitability from you know, global factors and also, I guess, internal factors as well. What changes are you seeing in the way that your customers are necessarily buying product, looking at product, or are they, is there, you know, is there a change to how they're, they're specifying products and what they're looking to purchase going forward that you wouldn't have seen two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? I think everyone's looking for value. It's not necessarily about the price nowadays, it's more about the value proposition. And by that I mean, you know, cost of operation. What's the what's the cost of that machine per hour, per day, per week, per month, per year? So that's a critical assessment, I think, at time of purchase now. So people are keen to know about what a machine's gonna cost to run. Sure, the purchase price is important, but that's also relevant to the residual value. And one thing with Merlot, we've seen over the years that Merlot commands a strong residual value in the market and therefore makes it a very cost-effective machine to run. One big change I'd say we've seen, particularly in the last few years, is the addition of options and extras in the cab when it comes to the operator, because as we all know as an industry, labor is an issue. And if you've got a good operator trying to keep that operator is maybe giving them a working environment that him or her uh, want to spend their day in. They don't, they don't necessarily look or want a basic machine. They want a machine with an air seat, with air conditioning, with cab suspension, with boom suspension. So I'd say we've seen a real development of the extras that bring comfort uh, and performance and efficiency to the operation of the machine, uh, rather than people looking for, for the, the basics of the machines. So something that we are seeing across, across the industry in lots of different ways is the increase in prices, inflation, you know, cost, you know, it, it's pure cost of machines. Do you think as we go forward, we're going to see agricultural budgets reduce on what they're likely to buy, or are you looking to see potentially more what you might describe as intelligent purchasing? I think definitely, I think the way people purchase and maybe they don't look to purchase, maybe they look to, to rent or lease or, or run an operating lease, certainly outside of agriculture, if you look at construction, which is another industry we operate in, the vast majority of customers would take a non-ownership view on a product. They, they'd rent, they'd lease, they'd hire. Um, maybe it's more effective for them from a tax perspective, uh, maybe it's more efficient for them from a working capital point of view, but certainly I think agriculture has been slow to come to consider those options. It is now happening and I think it's been driven as well 
people as we introduce new technologies like electrically powered vehicles like the e-worker where people actually start to consider well maybe I don't need to own this machine maybe I need to operate it for a defined period with maintenance included uh, and it kind of takes the worries away but gives a fixed cost operating model that everyone can budget around. So a question that I think we've seen raised by Sean then was the the issue and the, the availability of electric machinery. Now, outside of agriculture, we see a huge interest and in increase in electric cars, vans, and, and, and you know, other vehicles in transportation. But something we're not seeing a huge availability in agriculture yet is, is the famed electric tractor. Now, a lot of people might think that's a slightly, slightly odd situation, it being that tractors are allegedly incredibly slow, and you know have a high demand a high torque startup from batteries looking around the show we, we obviously most of the vehicles here with an engine are running on on diesel there's a quad bikes in front of me now that are that run on petrol but with by and large what we are seeing is a, a diesel powered industry something that we are seeing an increased growth in in the electrification is your smaller implements so the where, we, where we've just been with Sean, we're looking at an electrically powered telehandler, which is fairly specialist, but, but aligns to a market of electric forklifts, which have been a, a product for a significant period of time. But also we're looking at electric quad bikes and very small, in terms of the, the wider field of tractors, electric tractors for amenity applications. It is an area, of, the area that agriculture needs to address, largely because of our carbon footprint which some might have tried to ignore but agriculture does have a significant carbon footprint in in some respects and we are an industry which is wholly addicted to diesel so changes away from this uh, and the, the how we can address that are, are all factors that we want to look at now the next product i want to sort of bring the attention to is a is a solar powered product so electric in itself but also adds another factor which is the the issue that Sean has touched upon is availability of labour. Now this product is fairly unique in that it's both electrically solar powered but also is entirely autonomous. So we're not running worrying about diesel and we're not worrying about the cost and the availability of staff. Joining me now, uh, Helen Selkin from Opico and Eddie Peterson. Excellent, from FarmDroid. Now, FarmDroid are a product I quite like. I make no, no denyings about it. It's a solar-powered, fully autonomous, planting, weeding robot, okay? So through the wonders of audio, this is going to be quite difficult to explain it. But as best you can, could you tell us about that machine and what it offers for, let's say, European farming businesses that vehicles that run on diesel with an operator fundamentally don't? So if I should just take you very briefly through how the machine works first of all. The whole concept with machine is that the robot will, first of all, it's a seeding and weeding robot. So the robot will take care of the seeding first. And after it's done the seeding, the robot will remember the position of each individual seed and enabling it to go do the weeding not only between the rows like you would do with a normal harrow, uh, but also um, in between each individual plant, simply by remembering the position without any cameras. So something that, that we touched upon is that it's remembering the position and it's a feature of the machine which uses RTK GPS, which is an incredibly accurate form of GTS, that is recording the location of every plant. Now, to give the indication of what the machine looks like, it's a, effectively a trike with an enormous solar panel on top. It's sort of like a gigantic wheel picnic table with seeding units. And now Helen's face at this point is, is joyous, but due to, the, <laughs> due to how we're doing this, you can't see that. Um, it's an entirely stainless steel, enormous solar panel, which is fully autonomous. And 
One of the features which I, I think you probably expand upon now is that it will work not just in sunlight, it'll work 24 hours a day. Mm. Yeah, so when you have solar panels, obviously if you have, if you have direct sunlight in the summertime, obviously you have, you have, a, you have a, a, a better energy production. Uh, but when you work with solar panels, you only basically just need daylight. Uh, to give you an idea again, then the solar panels can uh, have a max output of uh, 1,600 watts. But when the robot is running, it's only consuming somewhere between 500 to 700 watts. So if you have a max, uh, um, uh, max solar production, then you will put these extra 1,000 watts into the batteries. So when the sun goes down, it will just start to run off the batteries at that point. But again, uh, you don't have uh, direct sunlight. You don't have the optimal condition, especially not in the UK all the time. We're from Denmark, it's the same. Uh, but even in daylight, you would have enough energy production to produce uh, energy for the robot to run, at least, uh, so to work. Day, both day length and, and sunlight intensity. Yeah determine how uh, how much power can be banked and saved and therefore once it's gone once the sunlight has disappeared how much longer it can go through its stored yeah, energy. Exactly. And you could say in, in southern Europe obviously they have more sun hours than we do in northern Europe but the good thing about northern Europe is we have very long days uh, so instead of uh, the sun going down at six o'clock uh, like it would do in somewhere in Italy uh, all year round almost then uh, in, in Denmark and in in, in the UK as well, you have uh, you have daylight until uh, 9, 10 p.m. in the evening, in the summertime, when you need the robot to work. So without this sounding like an accidental marketing pitch, pitch for uh, FarmDroid, although I do love the product, one of the things we hear a lot about is the cost of machinery. And this is obviously not a leading question, but Helen is nodding extensively now. Uh, as a as a, a cost of machinery, and if we look at other products here, we're seeing you know, 160 horsepower tractors at 220,000 pounds and require an operator in diesel. The farm droid is three meters wide, so it's a, a fixed working width. But can you give us an indication of how much it would cost as a, to, on farm as a machine to buy? Yeah, sure. And I think the first thing to say is I think most people are really surprised. Um, and as you know, at Lama, we've just won the Farming Futures and also the Innovation Awards at, at, at Lama for the farm droid. And one of the things the judges were quite surprised by was how little it cost relative to other other robots that are out there. So, so the farm droid is is in the region of seventy-five to eighty thousand pounds, and and of course, then you have to buy on top of that. You have to buy your base station GPS RTK GPS um, uh, station, um, but that station can run multiple farm droids. So it's it's uh, so it's in the seventy-five thousand pounds region. So that, to me, is one of the factors that really intrigues me with the product, in that when we think about the cost of the products we touch upon on tractors, that they require an implement, an operator, and diesel. The farm droid requires sunlight and some field. And, and I think that's sort of where we're starting to look at how agriculture innovates. We're not going to change our three, 400 horsepower tractors to electric. It, lots of physics will tell you that won't happen, but you're not overcoming the main challenge, is that we're not looking at our food production in a really holistic way and I feel that this product in a small way it is commercially available and does offer opportunities that we don't really see in power generation changes in existing product. Yeah I think you've hit, hit the nail on the head and I think with food production what's interesting about the farm droid is it's so very adaptable to so very many different crops um, 
and quite simple as long as it's a, a relatively small seed and, and, and that likes to be sown relatively shallow um, it, it, it's hugely adaptable um, through a very simple system and one thing you touched on is is the farm droid is going to be autonomous it runs on its own it's, it's working away in the field but technology is amazing and brilliant because it's going to uh, it's connected to your mobile phone or tablet um, not only to you it's also connected to farm droid in Denmark and if there's for some reason maybe it uh, misses a seed uh, it doesn't one doesn't drop through the, the farm droid will stop send you an alert let you know does a little shimmy to perhaps loosen the seed and, and drop it down and then carry on again and if it can't if it's something more significant than that the team in Denmark can have a look do some diagnostics very straightforwardly on their on their, their, their through their technology and often get it up and running before you've driven back to the field to find the farm droid so it's almost though it's autonomous but with a very uh, with a watchful overviewer um, just keeping tabs on every farm droid that's out there would you say Eddie is that right so yeah so thank you Helen, for that there's there's obviously quite a lot of insightful there um, I'm going to leave it with the delight of the shimmying robot. I quite like that. I think that adds a, a lot of... With lot actions. Of, yes, with actions. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you very much, guys. Um, so with, with Lama being the event that size is, there's an enormous number of manufacturers here from the UK and abroad, as we've touched upon. So one manufacturer that's been around since, since the turn of the century, since 1901, is Schaefer, a manufacturer of, of crops rares. Now, joining me now is Joe Allen, the marketing manager from Schaefer. And I think you've got some interesting views on, on, on how, as a business, we, we exist in, in the UK in manufacturing, but also what future opportunities there are and challenges that you will face as a manufacturer in this sector. Yeah, certainly. I mean, so as you said, Chafer's history goes back, you know, north of 120 years. You know, the business has been making sprayers since 1907. And certainly we've been through some, you know, ups and downs and various management changes and such. And we're, we're back to being a small family owned business, as it were, nowadays. But um, in terms of challenges and, and what's difficult nowadays, I mean, at the moment, we've got some certainly got some supply issues and, you know, we're having to order stuff a long way into the future. And that's proving difficult for, you know, planning production and such. But equally, some parts of that are now starting to soften and get easier around part supply. So we're, that's very nice, you know, as it stands at the moment, just to see some positives on that side. So something that I think we, we always want to touch upon that we're not seeing in the way in, in Britain that perhaps a lot of some people might romantically think we did is manufacturing. So mm -hmm. you're manufacturing all of your products in the UK, is that right? Yeah, so essentially the way Chafers works is we have our in-house engineering department, everything is designed, we contract out the fabrication and coating, but that is all really done, most of that within an hour of the factory. It's all UK based, you know, all our wiring looms are made in the UK. As much as we possibly can, we keep in the UK really basically because it's easy to manage you know that's the top and bottom of the quality we get is good we can keep an eye on those suppliers work very closely together and then also all those products are coming back in and being assembled at our factory in lincolnshire so everything is produced in the uk whether it's the self-propelled units the trails all the horse scene equipment that type of thing you know there's a lot of equipment in the in the supply chain that's all coming from the you know the united kingdom so something which will be of interest you know within ag and the, and the wider sector is that you're obviously manufacturing crop sprayers. Mm -hmm. There is a general public perception for some, from, yeah. from some parts of the yeah. world that, 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 that crop spraying is really, really bad. Um, are you, do you see these challenges in your business when we think about food production, when we think about food security, which is a very pertinent question at the moment, 
is how does crop spraying fit in the future? Where where will, where is this brand going? So you would say you've been making sprayers since 1906, was it? Uh, the first ones we made in-house, 1907, yeah. yeah. yeah so in 1907 and since then, some of the chemicals we've used have been... 99.9% of them have been banned, yes. Yeah, definitely. D deeply exciting, highly effective and often banned for very good yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah. So going forward in the future, where, what are we... What are we looking to see in the sector of crop protection from sprayers? Because it is, you know, it is your core business. You're not yeah, making yeah, any other products. Definitely, definitely. So, so how do we see this this going? You are correct. There are pressures in there. You know, I, it's not that new actives are added all the time. If anything, we we see a shrinking list of products almost that our machinery can apply. So, where do we see that going? What is our role in you know in agriculture and food production? Our job really is to do the most efficient, accurate job of applying those chemicals you know that's what we're really driving at whether it's auto section control pulse width modulation all these things that are designed to essentially make things you know more efficient use of the chemical make sure it's going where it should be not where it shouldn't be and really challenges for the future are actually how we optimize that further you know how do we actually drive that so we're not doing blanket applications across the whole field where products aren't applied they're being very targeted to a location where they need to be so we're really minimizing inputs which not only has an environmental benefit but will also have a benefit for our customers in terms of their inputs you know what they're having to spend to actually grow the crop and then and then looking at the business from a, sort of a, a more you know close to homes perspective you're you're producing machines that are self-propelled are driven by themselves mm -hmm. and and then trailed on the back of a tractor mm -hmm. do you do you see with with changing agricultural economies and, and increased costs that growers are looking to move away from self-propelled to a trail machine that utilizes a tractor they've already got yeah because they're already paying for that yeah or do you see actually growers are going no self-propelled gives me potentially more 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 working windows gives me higher efficiencies but there's obviously a, a considerable cost with that attached yeah. We, we very often get asked this question, you know, what is the trends in the market? Are we moving people to trail? Are we moving them to self-propelled? And really, it's a variety. It's what suits the farmer, what suits the business. You know, if your business has a spare tractor or a tractor that has some availability, a trail can suit in those locations. But where we've got one tractor on farm that does the prime move, does kind of everything, a self-propelled can fit better in that business. So we move customers both ways all the time. It's not, it's not that the trend is all one way. You know, we spent a lot of years pushing customers to trail machines because that's really where our product range was sat you know that's where we've done very well but equally it's not always the case it's never that simple these are custom-built machines and we will supply what is right for the customer's business there thank you very much for listening to this special over the farm gate podcast coming from Lama 2023 um, i hope you found it informative and picked up some interesting highlights from the event itself I think one of the things I think the takeaway for me is the sheer diversity of machinery we were seeing, not just in large, um, you know, sort of expensive machinery, um, but also your small new bits of tech, which are helping to drive the continuous progress towards net zero for agriculture, and hopefully making a difference to agricultural businesses as they are, you know, navigating what is potentially quite a challenging period of the industry. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, um, you can pick that up on the channel where you get your podcasts from. And hopefully we'll see you next year at Lama for some other updates about the machinery sector.